please pray with me again. Dear God, we ask you as we do each week to be here with us, and we trust that you are a God who keeps his promises and that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to answer the biggest question in life. The big, the big one. The big one. We have a sort of common theme in our readings today. I, you probably saw it as we read through the service. In the collect we say, You know the weaknesses of each one of us. Let each one find you mighty to save. We're saying, when we need help, please help us. And then in our reading from Deuteronomy, the people are reminded of their slavery in Egypt. It says, when the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us, we cried to the Lord. The God of our ancestors the Lord heard our voice and brought us out of Egypt. And then again in the psalm, he shall call upon me. This is actually from the perspective of God. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I am with him in trouble. I will rescue him. And then finally in our reading from Romans, St. Paul says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning we ask ourselves the greatest question in all of religious life. If I call out to God, will someone answer me? If I cry out for help. Is anyone going to be there? In the seminal uh, gangster-slash-vampire film From Dusk Till Dawn, which you've all seen, Harvey Keitel plays a pastor who has lost his faith. And at one point, one of his children asks him, Daddy, don't you believe in God anymore? And as part of his answer to this child, he says... <coughs> That every person who chooses the service of God as his life's work has something in common. He says, I don't care if you're a preacher, a priest, a nun, a rabbi, or a monk. Many, many times during your life, you will look at your reflection in a mirror and ask yourself, am I a fool? I submit to you that this feeling is shared not just by the preacher, but by the congregation. Am I a fool? Is all of this real? Am I just calling out into the void of nothingness? If I call out for help, will anyone answer me? And it might seem that the Bible says yes. As we just read through our readings this morning, we have a lot of examples of People saying, I called out and God saved me. In our reading from Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is St. Paul writing <coughs> in Romans, but quoting the prophet Joel. Everyone, he says, everyone who calls 
on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are comforting words, right? Everyone. There's no exceptions. But do you believe that? Can, can it be that simple? Does that even feel right to you that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Consider for a moment the verse that came into my head as soon as I read this quotation. When I sat down, I read St. Paul say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That didn't sound right to me. And so I thought of what Jesus says as he's sort of winding down the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father. Who is in heaven? That's not quite as comforting. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says, not everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question remains, are we fools? Do we, when we call out for help, have to confront the possibility that the answer will be no? Now, the answer to our question this morning comes in the form of our old friend, the distinction between the law on the one hand, the rules, the requirements of life, and the gospel on the other hand, the good news, the the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The answer is in the context, the the words surrounding these two wildly divergent statements. On the one hand, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And on the other hand, Jesus' claim that not everyone who calls upon him will enter the kingdom of heaven. (coughs) When Jesus says this, he's, as I said, wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, which, as you know, is all about the law. Sermon on the Mount is all about the law. This is a sermon where he takes all the old Jewish laws and makes them harder. Or, more accurately, where he gets sort of underneath the old Jewish laws to the matters of the heart that are at their core, right? He says, the Jewish law says this, but I say to you that. For instance, he says, the Jewish law says don't murder. But I'm telling you that the actual problem underneath murder is anger. So, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, do not be angry. He says the same thing about committing adultery, when he says, do not even look at somebody with lust in your heart. He says it about resistance, when he changes an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to turn the other cheek. And do not resist an evildoer. He says it about love. When he turns love your neighbor and hate your enemy into love your enemies. Jesus is in a law mode here. He's talking about what the law requires. What holiness looks like. And so he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only He who does the will of my Father. So, according to the law, to the rule book, it's not enough to call out for help. 
You must also do the will of God. Your qualities will be measured not by your words, but by your actions. Think of Tiger Woods, for instance. Remember several years ago when Tiger Woods' personal life sort of totally fell apart all in one night when it was revealed that he had been having these several affairs with many people all at the same time while married with young children. Um, And he gave a sort of public press conference to apologize. This is what celebrities are doing all the time, right? This is sort of what we expect of celebrities. They, They seem great, they make some terrible mistake, and then they make a public apology. And this is what Tiger Woods did. And like every celebrity who has ever done this, he said during his apology, don't just listen to what I'm saying now when I say I'm sorry. Watch how much better I do. Judge my, the quality of my apology by my changed life that you'll see. It's going to be so much better than just me saying I'm sorry when you can see how well I do. And this is what we do with everyone in our lives, right? Don't just apologize to me with your words. Show me that you've changed. Do better. It's not enough to say sorry. I want to see your changed life. This is the way the world works. This is the norm. This actually feels right to us. This is the law, right? The law says words are not enough. Show me your actions. We're like this. We are inherently distrustful of words because words are so easy to fake. But if we're like this, if we want to rely on actions rather than words, why is it that Jesus saying, not everyone who calls out will be saved, but the people who do the will of my Father will be saved, why does that make us so uncomfortable? Well, the easy answer is that we want the actions, not words, requirement to be the standard for everyone else, not for us. We want our words to be believed. We get uncomfortable when we're asked to prove it, which is, of course, what we ask of everyone else in our lives. And the possibility that we would, in a moment of weakness, call out to God for help and have him say, prove it, is a terrifyingly scary proposition. There's a great uh, Far Side cartoon of Colonel Sanders coming to the pearly gates And as he approaches the gates, he sees on either side a giant statue of a chicken. And we see his thought, and it just says, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. It's not enough to get to the pearly gates. You have to have qualified to get in. It's not the, the idea that not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but... Only those who have done the will of the Father is a real Colonel Sanders uh uh-oh moment for us. We start to wonder, have I done that? Have I done the will of my Father in heaven? Am I in? Or am I a fool? So let's turn our attention now to our reading from Romans, our more comforting reading. Paul says 
that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's great news. That feels great. But how can we be sure that it's true when we've just had Jesus saying this thing that seems to be the exact opposite of it? But listen to the context that Paul puts his statement in. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. Now this idea of no distinction between Jew and Greek is a little bit foreign to us in our sort of 21st century lives. We, we probably think naturally that it's just a simple statement of the universality of God, right? He might as well be saying, there is no American or Canadian. There's only one God, and God is the Father of all, both Americans and Canadians. But he's saying something much more profound than that. Because when Paul refers to the Jews and the Greeks, he's not just referring to two people groups or two cultures. He's referring to these sort of two symbolic groups of people who see themselves as very different. The Jews, if you'll recall, thought of themselves as chosen, as set apart, as pure, as holy, just because of their heritage, of who they were. That's why they have all the rules. For instance, the kosher rules. Being Jewish means being righteous and clean, and the rules are set up to keep you that way. When Paul, on the other hand, says the Greeks, he's referring to anybody who's not a Jew, who's not set apart, who is not chosen, not perfect, not holy, not clean, uh, not a keeper of the Jewish rules. They don't observe kosher. They're not clean. The Jews are chosen by God for Paul as a matter of their birth. Greeks are not. Jews are clean. Greeks are not. Jews are law keepers. Greeks are law breakers. His assertion now is a crazy one. He says, there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. In the first century, this was the distinction. It was of ultimate importance whether you were a Jew or a Greek, whether you were a law keeper or a law breaker. And Paul's assertion, and I really want you to hear this now, is that law-keeping and law-breaking are no longer distinguishing marks. Law-keeping and law-breaking are no longer ways to tell people apart. Now, Jesus' statement makes law-keeping and law-breaking, the only distinguishing marks, right? He says, I don't care about anything else. Do the will of my Father in heaven. He especially says, I don't care about your words. Show me your obedience. Show me your law-keeping. Do the will of my Father in heaven. 
Paul says the exact opposite. He says, keep your law keeping and your law breaking. There's no difference. There's no distinction, he says, between Jew and Greek, between law keepers and law breakers. He says, all who call out to God will be answered. And all will be saved. Can you imagine the power of what he's saying? I have to keep saying it to myself week and week after week, day after day, moment to moment, just to get it through my own head. There is no distinction between law-keeping and law-breaking. No difference between law-keeping and law-breaking. Jesus is preaching about the law in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the law says, show me your deeds. Keep your words. Show me your actions. Paul, though, is preaching about the gospel. Your deeds don't matter because a Savior comes to the lawbreaker as readily as he does to the lawkeeper. In fact, he specifically comes to the lawbreaker. But he comes because there is no distinction. So what happened? How did we go from what Jesus said to what Paul said? Something must have happened for this transition to have taken place from your deeds had better be good enough to your deeds don't matter at all. Something has got to have happened in the interim. And I'm sure you have guessed it by now. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount while he's still alive. While he's still kicking around, he's still on earth. He hasn't died yet, nor has he been resurrected. It is Jesus' death and resurrection that turns the key from law to gospel, that makes law breakers into law keepers, making it true, finally, that there is no distinction between them. The, the prophets in the Old Testament railed at Israel again and again because they weren't living up to the standard, to the law that God had set for them. You're living just like the pagans, they always said. You're not showing that you're chosen people. You're not living like you're set apart. You're living just like the people who don't know God. The prophets said, there's no distinction between you. They meant it, of course, as a criticism. That there was no distinction between the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews were just as sinful as the Greeks. But now, because of Christ, there is again no distinction. But this time... All have been made righteous, perfect, pure, holy. Their shared sin becomes shared righteousness. The precious gift of the crucified Jesus. It is because of this gift, this gift of a life, 
Jesus' life, a holy and righteous life, that we can say that law-breaking and law-keeping no longer matter. Because Jesus' law-keeping has been given to us, and our law-breaking has been given to Him. And so when we cry out into the void, when we say, Lord, help me, save me, rescue me, we can be assured, comforted by St. Paul's words that the Lord is generous to all who call on Him and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.